You know those experiences in life when you just have an exchange with somebody, maybe even a total stranger that you've never met before, and after a certain amount of time, the, the conversation ends and you just feel better for it? Like I, I just feel grateful. I'm thankful. I feel better for that experience and that opportunity I had to spend time with that person. Well, that's exactly what it felt like with my time talking to Steve Zakawani and spending time with him in this podcast. I'd watched him from afar. Uh, Seattle is known as the soccer capital of America. The, the folks in Seattle have loved the Sounders and, and loved the Tacoma Stars and loved all their soccer teams through the years. And, and having kiddos that play soccer, I knew Steve Zakawani's story as a soccer player. I knew some of the trials and tribulations he'd been through on and off the field, but I had no idea that I would walk away from our exchange and feel so incredibly thankful and grateful for the gift of it. I hope you feel the same way. Can you just take me to the very, very beginning of where this all starts? Oh, yes. I was born in the Congo, which is right pretty much Central Africa. At the time, it was called Zaire. Um, it's a country that's had a lot of civil war, even from the time I was born. My family was fortunate that for whatever reason, I don't know why to this day, that my dad, when he went to university, he's the first in his family to go. Um, he studied English, English language. So he could actually speak English well for some reason. And that got him a job in the United Kingdom, um, just translating um, immigration cases in the court system. So people, people from French-speaking nations um, come into the UK because he could speak French and English. He would be the translator. And so that moved our family out of that when I was about four years old. We moved to a place called Stonebridge, which is in the northwest part of London, kind of a rough neighborhood. But that's where I actually began playing soccer, just at school um, during break time and recess. And my main life growing up was in North London, um, in a small city, small town called Tottenham, which um, is still to this day... Um, home to one of the best um, soccer teams in the world. And so I grew up with that right in my backyard, seeing that. Um, and I lived in London my whole life. All my memories, you know, who I am, what formed me, I consider it London. As much as I'm African, but I have to be English just because I spent so much time there. And then it wasn't until I was 18 that I actually left home to go from London to Akron, Ohio, of all places, which um, at the time I had no idea what Akron was, what I was doing, but I was offered a soccer scholarship. I went there for that. Now I know that it's hometown of LeBron James. So it's on the map because of that. Um, but when I went, I didn't know that. And I spent two years in Akron, Ohio. And then I was drafted by the Seattle Sounders um, in 2009. And I've pretty much been in Seattle since. Yeah. So let's go back to the very beginning there. As yeah. you look at it now, Steve, do you think that was a gift that your dad had as far as you said a number of times? I don't know why. I don't yeah. know why. Do you think it was a gift that he had to learn that language yeah he, he's a very hard worker um you know and i've told him i think that the heart my example of a work ethic and hard work comes from him um just my whole life he's always worked and um so i've always seen that from him um for him to decide to s first to go to university he had to go um several miles away and live away from the family to even attend um university and then when he started working certain jobs, um, he was away a lot. So I think for him, it's just always a case of whatever he has to do to give himself the best opportunity. And then for his wife and his children, he was going to do that. And, you know, he already spoke French. That's our native language, our national language. Um, I'm a, one of many in the Congo. But to learn English there, I don't think 
to this day, people in the Congo speak English. Um, it's not common at all. And for him to do that way back um, in the 70s and 80s, um, it's pretty remarkable, actually. So I think he's just someone who is going to find a way to do what he needs to do to better himself and his family. you have any memories of those first four years of your life in the Congo? I do a couple. One, I was in a school play. I forget what role I played, but I just, when I tell that story now, I just said that I was the lead, which I probably wasn't, but I, I just say that I doubt that I was. <laughs> and then the other one is, um, you know, just the climate in the country at the time. You know, it wasn't uncommon to kind of walk in the street and see the remnants of the war. And you knew that um, it was a very unstable country. So I have some of those memories, nothing specific, but um, I have spoken to my parents about that in the years since. And the time when I was growing up, as a really young kid, um, it, it was heightened. It was very heightened. So I saw some soldiers on the streets or things like that, that is kind of suppressed in my mind, but I do remember it vaguely. How many brothers and sisters? I'm number three. So two brothers, three sisters. My brother's here right now. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm right. <laughs> two brothers, three sisters. There's six. I'm number three. And you're number three. Yeah. So at that point, um, at four years of age, when you moved from the Congo to London, was there another younger brother at that point or two? Yeah, we were four. Four at two, that point. The last two were born in the UK and we were four. So yeah, my brother who's with me here today was born right after me. And then right shortly after he was born, we all moved to the UK, four of us. And that transition from the Congo, yeah. four years of age to London. Crazy. Yeah, we went through Brussels in Belgium. I remember that. And then we arrived in the UK. And after we hadn't seen... You know, I don't remember seeing rain, um, cold weather, just things, those small changes. And then just being in a city, um, so many people. So just even seeing brick buildings and massive, we call them council estates. I think they call them projects like those buildings. We didn't have anything like that in the Congo. And then not being able to speak the language because I got there, went straight to school and was definitely an outcast. One, from my culture, where I was from. And two, I couldn't communicate with other kids. You know, I spoke French and I couldn't speak English. So I actually hung out with my older sister and older brother in school a lot but then that gets boring quick because you're seeing them at home all the time and then you're seeing them at school and it's like we had no friends so actually my first friends I made was because I was never invited to join in the soccer games that took place during recess and then one day they were short on numbers and it was just like can you play and then I came in took the ball and scored and then the kids looked at me like did you just do that do it again and I did it again and then the next day I was the first kid picked when they were picking teams Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. And did you grow up playing in the Congo then? You played some soccer? So some, not serious, like no real memories. My dad tells me that I would always kind of kick the ball around and things like that. But my actual memories of when I'm like, okay, I'm actually playing soccer, they're from the United Kingdom. Um, when I was about five is when I would say that in school. And then also I had an uncle that took my older brother, myself, um, to the park every weekend. And then right around age six, I joined my first team actually. Age six. Age six, yeah. And that was also about the time on the playground. They're like, hey, man, this guy's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. They were like, it literally was an overnight thing where I became the talk of the school and like, the most popular kid in the school because, you know, soccer in England, it's just so, it's in our culture. Like, it's the number one sport by far. And if you're good at that, your cred just goes through the roof. And um, I learned speaking English by being on the, on the pitch with, with the kids, the different terms, pass the ball or make that run. Like I learned words that way, phrases. Yeah. So much like your father, as we talked about with just his hard work, yeah. as you look back now at five, six, seven, as you're transitioning, were you pretty gifted then? Did you realize that this came pretty natural to me or was it about a immense amount of work for you as well? It, it came very easily for me. And that became almost a gift and a curse. So when I was about nine or 10, 
I signed for the Arsenal Youth Academy. And Arsenal is one of the biggest teams in England and in the world. And to be nine years old signing for that kind of team is just unbelievable. But I could just do things that I'd never been taught. It just happened for me. And you have to work really hard to maximize it. But because I was so far ahead of most people, I didn't always push myself a lot. And that's where my dad was important because he was always on my occasion. And my memories of him and me growing up was leaving a game, getting in the car. And even if we won 3-0 and I scored two, the first thing you'll bring up is the one that I missed in the 26th minute. Or the, the why didn't you make that pass? Like he always was a perfectionist in that sense. And that kept me going because if it was just left to my own devices... There was a time when I was, I knew I was good and I was better than most kids I ever came into contact with. And so I didn't try as hard at all as I could have back then. Was there any spiritual component, any faith component in your home? So yeah, my dad's side of the family in the Congo were all Muslim and my mom's side was all Catholic. And then when we got to the UK, they both became born again Christians. So it was kind of, we saw all sides very early on. Um, yeah, we were in church every weekend. I think my dad, like we have so many kids and people in the family, like the cars he would buy would be for the purpose of fitting everyone in the car to go to church. Like, If so many, you don't even remember the number of brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> we were there every weekend. So um, yeah, it was, just, it was normal, um, you know, just being in that environment. And I think the part of the Congo I'm from is a very spiritual place as well. So a lot of my aunts and uncles and cousins, um, we all were in the same church. And it probably... I did that probably till about 13. And then I think around age 13, when I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm old enough to kind of decide a little bit. And a lot of my games were on Sundays. So I would miss church sometimes. And then my dad sometimes would, couldn't go to the game. So that was where we kind of started to differentiate between me having to be there every week, like in a church service. And I would say from about 13 to 17 is where I could count on probably one hand, maybe two, how many times I went to church. But before that, it was every week. So talk to me a little bit, and I've heard about it, and I think in America we know the name Tottenham, and we know yeah. Arsenal, and we've yeah. heard of those. What was life like for you in that club? Amazing. Um, changed my life. So Tottenham, the city, is not very nice, um, not a great place. And actually, Tottenham, the team, and Arsenal, the team, are the biggest rivals, like eternal rivals. So I was living in Tottenham playing for Arsenal. So even getting to practice was tough for me. I wouldn't wear the Arsenal jacket sometimes, like my practice gear because they were the rival until I made it to the other side of town and then I could be like okay now I can be Arsenal because I, was, I lived around a lot of Tottenham fans. And what age are you at this point? It's like between 9 and 14 so for 5 years I was doing this um, but the reason it was so incredible to be in a team like Arsenal was we travelled the world we, tr we were such a great team that we travelled um, mostly Europe but a couple parts um, outside of Europe as well to play in different showcases and tournaments so from age 9 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 I was like seeing how big the world was and it taught me to dream it showed me that things were possible and a lot of people from the neighborhood i'm from had very narrow minds because all you knew was the neighborhood um there were people that were 50 60 years old that would sit on the steps on a saturday telling stories from 20 30 years ago that took place in that same radius but and i'd never left the city and i was in italy one weekend and then i'd come back for a couple of days and i'd be in brussels and i'd be in amsterdam and then went to andorra and I was doing what I loved. So that gave me, I think, the first glimpse that the world is such a big place. Um, one, I want to travel. But two, if I work really hard at this, this could become my life one day. I think I also read, though, it was in some of those years, you weren't nicest of kids. No, no, I, I, I went off the rails. The issue was school. That was the problem. Like, I was a pretty bright, smart kid. Like, I would give myself that. But I never applied myself. And all it was was because I knew 
I was going to be a professional soccer player. It was just like such a given to me that school just, it didn't make sense to me to try in school. And then when it all kind of changed for me was at age 15, um, myself and four or five of my friends, um, for whatever reason, we decided to steal a motorcycle. And age 15 is important here because in England, we finished school at 16. And 16 is also the age when you can sign your first pro contract. So I'm like a year away from this dream that my dad and I have worked towards for a long time. One year before that, we steal a motorcycle. I've never rid- ridden one before. Um, don't know what I'm doing. There's no helmet. It's literally, we're just crazy kids going in and out of rush hour traffic in London. And then after about two hours of riding, um, I lose control and crash into a car. And instantly I knew something was wrong. I didn't think it was that bad, but I tried to walk when I got off the bike and from my right knee down, there was no feeling. So collapsed on the floor, ambulance was called, taken to the hospital. My dad obviously comes across and he says to the doctor, you know, my boy is one of the top players in the country. Like he's a year away from this big contract or this first contract. How long until you can mend him again? And the doctor says like, we're going to do our very best just to have him walking again. And then that was when I remember I went into two surgeries in a two week span. There was severe nerve damage. I did probably ACL, MCL, PCL, all, all the CLs in the knee I did. And then for like a year, I couldn't play soccer because I had no strength in the leg. Couldn't really walk. I stopped going to rehab. I finished school, left school with no grades. And that was absolute as rock bottom as you can be for a 16 year old and 17 year old. I was there. So what were those nights like laying in bed? You'd said through those years, you could count on your two hands the number of times you went to church. Yeah. Is it at that point there's some reckoning? Right after. So it was about a year where I wasn't playing and I got involved even in more things, just um, hanging out on the streets with my friends. And the funny thing is because I, I still saw myself as an athlete, I never got into like um, drinking or smoking or things like that or drugs, but I was around it all and I was with them and I would be out my day would start at 10 p.m. And that's when I would leave the house and just be out the whole night or whatever and doing things like that. There was one PE teacher that I would say saved my life at that point because in my school, where I went to school, it was a place where you didn't like the teachers. You were just taught to, were the students, were rebellious, we don't like the teachers. One teacher that all the students liked, he was a Jamaican PE teacher and because he dressed like us, talked like us, understood us, knew our music and he could play soccer really well. So he was really good. And so he had our respect. And when I left school, I didn't stay in touch with any teachers, but he would always reach out to me. And then one evening, he texted me or called me and said, I want you to come with me to a leadership seminar tomorrow. It was a Saturday night. And I'll never forget this. And I said to him, one, what's a leadership seminar? And two, Sunday's my day off. Keep in mind, I had no job, no school. So every day was a day off, but I said, Sunday's my day off. And then... He did, and we left it at that. And the next day, he's knocking on my door. And my room in the house was right downstairs by the front door, so I could hear it. I peek out the window, and he's there. So I get ready as quick as I can, get in the car. He has two other boys in there. And he goes, I'm taking you guys to a leadership seminar. We drive. We arrive to go from North London to East London um, to a city called Stratford, um, close to where they actually held the Olympics in 2012. We arrive to this warehouse, and I walk in, and I get really upset because this is not a leadership seminar it's a church service and i'm like you tricked me one and two what are we doing here and so i sit down take my phone out i'm like these things last about one hour two hours i'll just pass some time play games on my phone and they introduced a guest speaker he was from the bahamas and i had no idea who this guy was 
he just happened to be there that day. He gets up and starts speaking, and there's like probably a thousand people in there. And I honestly feel like it's just me and him. Like he, the things he's saying, it's like he, some, someone's told him my life or my mindset, and this is all a ploy to get me here. This is for me. And so he keeps speaking and keeps speaking. At the very end, they say, if it's your first time in this church, the speaker has a brand new book, you get a free copy. So I was the first in line. They pull back the ribbon. I walk forward. He signs the book for me. It's him, his wife, his daughter sitting at the meet and greet table. I shake his hand and I look in his eyes. And to this day, I say, I can only describe looking in his eyes and seeing peace. I can't call it anything else but peace when I look in his eyes. And I remember saying right there, I don't know if you're real, but I want what this man has. Because my life at that point was chaos. As I said, I would sleep all day. My days would start at 10 p.m. I was had no direction, no income, no job, no process for education, wasn't playing soccer. But that man he seemed to be together and he seemed to be at peace with himself. And I just said, I want that. So went home, forgot about it. Spent the day with friends, hanging out, just hanging out. I get to, this is June 12, 2005. It's such a profound day. I get in bed that night about to sleep and I start thinking about the day and I'm feeling emotional. And like a couple of tears come out of my eyes and I'm like, no, why am I, I shouldn't be crying. Why am I crying? Like, you know, I'm tough. Like I'm not going to cry. And, but I'm emotional about the day and I'm trying to wipe the tears away and more come. So I get on the phone and I call that PE teacher. I'm like, I don't know what you guys did to me at church today, but make it stop. Like, I don't know what this is. And then he kind of laughed and just says, we'll talk tomorrow. And then we hung up the phone. And then all those years, I didn't know that in that room, there was a Bible by the TV stand. And I picked it up and I read it. And by the time I was done, kind of, I kept going kind of in and out different parts of the book. And um, by the time I was done, it'd been several hours. And then the next two weeks of my life was actually that. It was just staying home. Didn't, never left the house once. And I would just read the Bible. And I was reading it more from a perspective of some of the things the speaker had said and what I was seeing in there, it was making me rethink, what one, what I thought about myself, two, what I believed I could achieve, and three, most importantly, was like, it gave me a sense of purpose. And I knew that I wasn't just an accident. I wasn't created just to kind of exist like I'm doing now. I can do, I can do and be so much more. I need to find what that is and then just do it. And then thankfully, after that two-week period, the speaker was back in town, went to see him again, and then the PE teacher took myself and three other boys and told us he's going to mentor us. And for two years, we went to his house every Thursday for two, for, wow. for two hours. And he just spoke to us about life, about, um, about the creator, about manhood, financial management, health and nutrition, just brought us all things, all sort of like from a biblical perspective he was doing. And he had an amazing library in his home of books. And we would check out books every week and bring them back. And he just, that two-year period, it changed my life. Without that, I'm probably not sitting here today. What was his name? The PE teacher was called Mr. Paul Goodison. And the speaker from the Bahamas was a guy called Miles Monroe. Mr. Paul Goodison? Goodison, yeah. And you're in touch with him still I today? Spoke to Paul, yeah, I speak to Paul. I don't see much because I'm here. Yeah. But Paul is still around. You know, when I'm in the UK, he's one of the people that I put on my list to go see. But um, yeah, he, in that two-year period, wasn't just myself. It was a few other boys as well we're all men now we talk about it and what he did is just i can't even put into words and he would you know he lived by wembley stadium which is in northwest london it was about a 40 minute drive to where i was and he would drop each one of us home individually and this would be like we get that 7 p.m we wouldn't be leaving till like midnight or 1 a.m and we just spoke about 
all kinds of, we've read autobiographies and I began to read four books a month at that point. And I've pretty much stuck to that in 13 years since. And it was because of him. He just put a love of reading in me and someone like me who didn't really study in school, didn't like reading. I became a big lover of books and he put that in me, but it was more the things he was teaching me. It was just not to be average, to do more that God created me to actually one, be in close, close relationship with him. And two, the things that flow out of that shouldn't be normal. They should be extraordinary and for the benefit of others. And I think at that age, look back now, I don't remember exactly what it was, but in that two-year period at some point, I began to understand that I could play soccer again. But the platform it would give me can make me do so much more in this world. How beautiful is that? Yeah. And that his love and service and pouring into you, yeah. young man, that is just yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And that's when maybe the gift and the, the spirit spoke to you that, you know, I got this gift to play soccer. Had the leg healed? So I'd sat down with Mr. Paul Goodison about a month and a half into it. And he said to me, when I was a teacher in that school, all the teachers never worried about you because we knew you'd be a pro soccer player. You just, you just knew. And he goes, I've been in that school, I think at that point, maybe 15, 20 years. I've never seen a player come through this school like this. You will be doing a disservice, not just to yourself, but to this generation and to everyone around you if you don't pursue this. The next day, I was up at 5 a.m. and began to just take myself jogging, take my ball to the park and start to rehab myself. Within three or four months, my leg was getting stronger. A friend of mine that I played with at Arsenal years ago told me there's a guy not much older than us. He's running some practice sessions for kids like us who are 16, 17, but not in the professional system. He's just going to kind of take care of the kids who kind of fall through the traps. And I began to go there two or three times a week. Within a couple weeks of being there, that coach says to me, like, if you want to go pro, I can help you, but you're going to work as hard as you've ever had. And so five days a week, that was my job pretty much. Go work out with him. Um, started working out in the gym. I was starting to play games again. I began to feel confident. And what that coach did for me was he emailed, I would probably guess, 2,000 clubs around the world sending video clips of myself just saying give him a chance and most didn't reply some did and said no and the few that said yes um we went he just he he he, he took me paid for me we we took we went across europe on trains cars whatever would take us we found a way and we went to these trials most of them lasted a day and the team said no but we kept going and i never forget back then actually i was looking at this notebook the other day so it reminded me I wrote in my notebook, it was about 2006, and this is the way I understood life back then. I remember reading the story of Abraham and being like, you know, Abraham made a deal with God. I'm going to make a deal with God as well. Yeah. And I said, I'm, my deal is, God, if you help me become a pro soccer player, I'm going to give back to you and serve you. And after like the third rejection, I remember being so mad at God, like this is just ridiculous. Like This is not working. And I came back home and being so mad. And then I read a verse in the Bible that says, God is faithful and he keeps covenants with those that love him for up to a thousand years. And I said, well, it's only been three months, so maybe there's still some time. So, <laughs> so I got back on the horse. And then ultimately, how does Akron, Ohio come into this picture? So while I'm at this team, going on tryouts, working out, I'm trying to get into the pro system, into, into any pro club will give me a chance. Um, some coaches from the United States began to come over, but they were coming to watch the other players because we believe that I was destined for Europe. And Different schools came, UNC, um, Indiana, um, quite a few, and then Akron came, and Akron were the ones that were like, we know you have no interest in NCAA, we know you have no interest in coming to the States, you're trying to go to Europe, but if you'd consider it, 
um, we'd love to have you on a circle scholarship. And they gave me like a DVD of the school and the games. I showed it to my parents. And at that point, my dad was like, look, this one gives you education and soccer because you've already learned that soccer is not guaranteed. So this gives you both. And I remember thinking, okay, what, 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 what should I do? And I said, well, you've got to take the SATs. I said, what's that? It's an English test and you've got to do some maths. And numbers and me have never gotten along. So I started getting really nervous, like I'm not going to get it. And they said, well, here's a score you need. So I studied so hard, took it, and then ended up getting the exact score I needed to get into Akron. And then they came in April or May of 2006. And by January 2007, without ever visiting, I arrived in Ohio. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And your first, you land in, in Ohio, Cincinnati or Cleveland or one of the yeah. airports, right? Yeah. You, you land there and your first thought is? It's snowing and go home. <laughs> like, yeah, it was in the middle of winter. I couldn't believe it. It was that first week was miserable. I'm like, this is crazy. But then we started um, practicing in the spring. And um, for me, it was, I've come from the last two years, pretty much playing in parks with my friend, wherever we could find um, fields. Um, just this one coach who was like 19 or 20 at the time, we were 16, 17, who would just kind of run practice sessions for us. But we kind of would bring our own gear and we just, we just didn't look like a team to now being in university with amazing facilities. And they're a great program. Yeah, really were. And the coach at the time was a guy called Caleb Porter, who eventually he won a national championship there. Then he came to major league soccer and won an MLS cup there. So great coach. He was in his second year only. So he was still a young coach, very ambitious. And he just made us believe that we could compete with anybody. And, for me, being back in that environment reminded me of being at Arsenal, where I'm getting the best training, the best care. The difference this time was I was going to work as hard as I need to. So I pushed myself and I loved the education part of it as well because I love to learn and read by that point. So that wasn't going to mess me up. My freshman year was okay. We went to my sophomore year and things just took off. Um, led the nation in scoring. Um, ESPN came to campus, Sports Illustrated came and began to be a lot of buzz about this kid from London who no one wasn't on anyone's recruiting radar, kind of just fell into Akron's lap. And at that point, it wasn't common for underclassmen to go into Major League Soccer draft. It was not common back in 2008, 2009. But I began to hear whispers that I would be. I was so dedicated, almost too dedicated in college that I never had a phone. If I talked to anyone's my family on Skype, um, no TV, I was just like, I'm not going to mess this up. Like I'm getting the second chance. I'm so dedicated. I'm practicing. I'm reading my school books and then I'm just staying home. That's it. And so when agents and people began to be interested in me, they have to call my coach. And then, so he started to get annoyed. Like I'm getting 30, 40 calls a day. Like you need to get a phone, which I didn't. And then eventually the season finishes. We're losing the NCAA tournament the next day. And I always will respect um, Caleb Porter, my coach for this, because he sat me down after my sophomore year. And he says, if you stay here, Within two for the next two years, junior and senior year, we will win a national championship. But I think you should go pro. I think you've outgrown the program here because your level now is of a pro player. And if you stay here and get injured or something, you've missed your chance. You should go pro. And I told him yes. We signed with an agent that day, and within a week, I'd signed a contract with Major League Soccer. And I had months to wait for the MLS draft, and it just happened so quickly. But literally two years in Akron, Ohio. Um, put me back on the path of going pro is the way I never would have guessed that that's how I would have turned professional wow. but and you ultimately become the number one pick so yeah so I made a big mistake after I signed a major league soccer contract I went back to the UK and just celebrated and just was so happy and didn't keep in shape and so I go to the MLS combine and I'm way out of shape 
thankfully, my coach at the Combine was also my college coach, Caleb. And he could see that, okay, this guy is not sharp right now. He's not ready. So he didn't play me too many minutes. So I didn't, I didn't damage my stock. The fortunate thing was the Seattle Sounders coach, Ziggy Schmidt, had previously coached in Columbus, Ohio. So he'd been to Akron Games to see me in person. So he's, he convinced the general manager that let's take this kid. And he says to him, he's either going to be a very, very big success or uh, the biggest bust we can have. Nothing in between. That's what he says to him. And they took that chance. And then Seattle drafts me number one, which was such a proud day for me because the, I didn't really care where I got drafted. But when I fought back to the journey of what I've actually had to overcome and how this has all happened and the days where... I was just myself in the park with the ball and just trying to get my knee better um, to now be in a foreign country. And they say, you're the best player out of everybody in college and you're a sophomore. It was a proud day. And I remember doing my draft speech and all of that and just flying back to Akron, Ohio that night from Chicago, well, from St. Louis, where the draft was. And the sense of gratefulness I felt to, to, to God was beyond what I felt in my life. I just felt like, one, how blessed I was, but two, if I had not gone to that leadership seminar in 2005, I would not be here. There's just no way. So I felt a great gratefulness and then also a huge sense of responsibility to not forget my end of the bargain, which was that I'm going to do my best to serve as many people as I can with this platform. I think it's cute that you're still calling it a leadership conference. <laughs> yeah, which it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that that, uh, I think that's beautiful. I also hear a bunch here, Steve, through your story of how much structure is important. Yeah. You said, if I was left to my own devices, and when I was left to my own devices, and it's interesting, isn't it, as an athlete, how we all navigate this a little differently, how we all navigate our gifting differently. It feels to me that in your life, you've realized that really need for structure. Yes, yes. and structure came to me by Mr. Paul Goodison saying, every Thursday at 7 p.m. be at my house. It gave me something to do. Before that, I was just living every day. Um, every day was different, just doing whatever, running around. And he gave me something to do. And then also I had to read a book that week from his library, bring it to him and tell him what I'd learned. So I couldn't just waste time during the week because he would know because he'd read every book on that shelf. So that structure was important. Then I get to Akron, Ohio, and it's like you have class at this time, you have practice at this time. Suddenly, and I thrive in that situation because I knew what I had to do. And I had a vision that was guiding me um, that I came to this country with. And so the structure just helped me manage that my discipline and that vision. And then I've never wanted to stray away from that. Um, till this day, I always prefer, even when I played professionally for the Sounders, it was different because there was no class. We practiced nine in the morning, be done by noon, and then I had the rest of my day off. And so I had to actively make sure I filled my day with things that were positive or things that were taking me towards where I wanted to go rather than just come home and do nothing because that would not have been good for me. So you ultimately become the number one pick. This expansion franchise takes off. The city explodes with the Sounders. Your career is thriving. Yeah. You're the talk of the town. People yeah. start to get to know your name. Yeah. And take me to 2011. Yeah. So 09 rookie year, as a rookie, played every game. And we won the U.S. Open Cup. We made the playoffs fantastic. Comeback second year, just almost like college, explodes, was the team's leading goal scorer, scored a Sounders first ever playoff goal. We won the U.S. Open Cup again, back to back. We made the playoffs again. And I was on a high. I got to represent my national team, the Congo, in the off season. I trained with some teams in England. It was, I came into the 2011 season at the peak of my powers. Like, I've been playing this sport since I was five. This is the best I've ever played it. Um, to the point where my teammates, one of my teammates says to me, like, I'm literally watching the growth 
and the emergence of the next big star in this country. Like I'm watching it every day in training. I feel great to be a part of it. Um, preseason poll from GMs and coaches, you know, top five player, top 10 player. Um, I was just an exciting guy to watch and I felt good. I was someone who believed in training hard. My off seasons, I take a week or two off and then I'd be in the gym, always trying to improve. I love to practice. And then the season starts not well for the team, but very well for me. Like things that I was doing at Arsenal and some at Akron as well, where you get into a zone where it's never easy, but it feels as people watching think it's easy because you're just in a zone and anything I want to do, I'm going to do. When I decide, it was like, this is my ball. If I decide I'm going to dribble three or four players, I'm going to do it. If I decide, okay, I need to score, have an assist in this game, I feel capable of doing it. So I'm doing all of that. We go for the sixth game of the season to Denver, Colorado, playing against the Colorado Rapids. Um, it was like on a Friday night, if I remember correctly. And national TV game, um, nothing else about it was special or stood out. Just another regular season game. And I think we're flying out that night. So I'm looking forward to just getting three points, winning the game and then heading home. And like in the third minute of the game, and I hadn't really touched the ball at that point, I don't think. So I made it in my mind, like when I get the ball, I'm going to try to make something happen. The ball comes to me on the left, where I always like to stay on the left side of the pitch. And I pushed it past the first defender. And as I wanted to take my next step to dribble, I just felt someone come in and take my right leg out. And you knew it was bad because everything was silent. I looked at the faces of everyone on the team benches, both teams, hands over eyes, mouths open, gasping. And it's happening in slow motion. As I land, I look up and like my leg is bending in two directions. And I'm like, okay, I've seen this kind of injury before. My season's done. We're in April, playoffs are in November. I'm done. This takes at least a year. But I was surprisingly calm. And people that have, I've never watched the video back. People that have watched it back says you were surprisingly so calm. And it's because I accepted my fate right away. My leg's broken. And you're going to be out for a year. But people have come back from this before, which you will. And you've had the motorcycle injury before. You've done this, you will. And I'm thinking all these things in my head. Mm. Suddenly I snap back and the pain begins. They put me on the back of the ambulance and they drive me to the Rose Medical Center, I think in downtown Denver. I'm still in game gear. And the thing that really upset me about this was when I was 16 or 17 and I was going to all those tryouts across Europe, I used to carry the same pair of soccer shoes um, in a plastic bag, wash them myself over a sink in a restroom somewhere in Amsterdam airport or something and just have them ready. And I worked so hard to the point where Adidas gave me the privilege of designing my own shoe one of the few players to get in the league. And I designed these amazing white Adidas shoes and I was wearing them and I get onto the operating table and the doctor's like, yeah, we've got to cut your shoes because we've got to operate. And that's what upset me more than anything, the fact that these amazing shoes had to be cut with scissors. They do that. I go into surgery, wake up the next day and Ziggy Schmidt, the head coach, Adrian Hanawa, the general manager, and Randy Noteboom, who was the head trainer, are in the room with me. We're making jokes. We're keeping it lighthearted. And the doctor comes bursting in. And says, we have to take you back on the operating table. There's been complications. Turns out I developed something called compartment syndrome, which long story short is just severe nerve damage. And if left to its own devices, your leg is so swollen that the nerves um, are being pushed against compressed. They can die. And in severe cases, it leads to amputation. Um, in my case, it meant I would never have played again. So they do about three, or three more surgeries over the next three days in Denver. Not successful. We have to fly to Seattle. Can't fly commercial. I can't walk. Sounders owner sends his plane. His pilots have to carry me onto the plane. And we land at Boeing Field. We go straight to Virginia Mason Hospital. Another surgery. End up having four more. I think it was nine total. After the ninth one, they said, we can't keep operating. But 
we're hopeful this last time was successful but just be prepared that you may never play again at that level you were at or at a professional level you'll walk and have a normal life but an athlete that's going to be tough and that's what they told me discharge me i went home right away on my fridge i put two goals one was to regain my spot in the starting lineup for the sounders and two was to score a goal again at central infield that was i just put those on the fridge and then because the injury happened on a friday every friday was a landmark for me it was what can i do this friday that i couldn't do last friday but internally it was killing me inside and i had some very tough questions regarding faith that i had to wrestle with that probably took me a good part of a year a year and a half before i had it settled but it was tough for me to think i've always and this is the way i thought back then i've done everything right i'm supposed to do but the worst thing can happen to an athlete happened to me why take me to that you know laying on the couch or take me into your home at that point in those battles yeah frustration because at first you know my mom's there and then she leaves and then a friend of mine comes in, then another friend comes in and then eventually I can drive myself and take care of myself. And at this point, um, I was you know, a bachelor um, living in, a, in my condo and it was just myself. And the times when it was just myself, I'm just at home, whatever, if I am just have the TV on and my mind's racing. I'm just a lot of questions because I couldn't watch soccer games, any games, especially Sounders games, because one, I should be out there. It should be my prime years, like... Am I ever going to get back? Those were questions. And quite frankly, God, why would you allow this to happen? Like, how can I keep having faith and believing when you, one, you didn't protect me, you allowed this, okay? And then I think, is that a lesson I'm supposed to learn? But couldn't I have not learned it another way? There was all these questions and it was just um, a constant daily struggle. And it wasn't until I reconnected with the speaker I'd heard in London in person. I, I was with him. And his take on my injury is what shifted my whole thing and propelled my comeback. So I'll give some context to it. So after I heard him speak in London, I watched everything he ever did, read every book. And then in 2009 or 2010, I said, why don't I just meet him? So I, off season, I was at home. I booked a ticket to the Bahamas the next day. I landed in the country. Everyone knew exactly who he was. And I said, okay, great. Take me to his headquarters. I went there. And they have a bookstore there. And the lady in the bookstore says, you know, I work here and I've probably seen him twice this year. He is busy. He's traveling. He's talking to governments. He's talking to sports teams. He's a busy guy. But I think I saw his car today. You might be in luck. So they call up to his office. Said, There's a young man here from Seattle. He says he met you in London years ago. He wants to meet you. And they say he's on a call. They'll let you know. I stay for about two or three hours. And I'm about to leave. And they come and say, okay, he will see you. And like I've met, you know, a lot of, like I've met, I played against David Beckham. I played against Lionel Messi, who's the best player some people say of all time in our sport. And I don't really care about celebrity or being overruled, but in this man's presence, because I went up to his office and he mm. comes out, like I had to sit down because my legs were, I couldn't feel them. Because it just the magnitude of the words he spoke changed my life. Like literally, he gave me a different way of viewing God. Um, and he also gave me the belief in myself that I could do what I did to leave home, to go to Ohio by myself, to come to Seattle, to become a success and do what I was doing. And so we connected. He says, you know, from this day forward, I'm going to keep you close. You, 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 you keep me young, he says to me, and mm-hmm. I want to get into soccer. And so the blessing of the injury was I had a lot of free time and I did rehab on my own schedule. So he used to come to the States a lot to travel and I would, wherever he was, I would go and I would just be by his side, hang out with him, soaking up all the knowledge I could. And so we were in North Carolina and his wife and daughter were there as well. And they hadn't seen, the, none of them had seen the injury. 
they'd heard about it, hadn't seen the video. So I hadn't watched it, but I told him how to find it on YouTube. And his wife and daughter watched it and they like freaked out at the point of impact and were like, this is disgusting. It's so bad. It's the worst thing we've seen. He says, let me see. He watches it and he kind of smirks and gives this little laugh. And I'm really upset at this. Like, are you la- like, why are you laughing at my pain? And I'm like, just, I didn't say a word, but I was really upset. We go into the meeting. He speaks at this business meeting. Um, we finish and he calls me, says, Steve, come see me in the green room. And he sits me down, just me and him. And he says, you were upset that I laughed, weren't you? I said, yeah, quite frankly, I was. He goes, here's why I laughed. A few months ago, you sent me a long email and you said that this injury was causing you to question your faith and you were struggling and all kinds of things. And he goes, and that's why I laughed. And it made no sense. I said, I said, I still don't understand. I'm still mad. He goes, you had an injury to your right leg. He goes, if your faith was as strong as your right leg, it wasn't faith. It was just convenience. And then he left the room. And I sat there for like 20 minutes by myself, just like, this is unbelievable. Like he's just changed my perspective. He goes, if it just takes losing the health in your right leg to make you stop having faith, it was never faith. It was just convenience as long as you were healthy. Faith has to be faith no matter what. And I think I wrote that down in my phone, in my notes. I flew back the next day, put it on my fridge. And then it was, the, the battle was different. Never wrestled with those questions again. I decided from that day forward that no matter, I could lose everything. No matter what happens, I'm just going to believe. I'm just going to keep having faith because it can't be based on convenience. And so his words, again, changed the way I approached the rehab. And it kind of gave me a second wind approaching the final hurdles of that. Wow. Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. Man, your story is just overwhelming me in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're a beautiful speaker yeah. too, man. You. You've really got the gift. Let's try to put a little bow on this and spin it forward here then to you realize that your next steps are you want to get back and keep yeah. using this platform? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to get, I wanted to at least play again and achieve those goals. So this is when I knew that this story was being orchestrated. Um, not by me. Um, I'm training, I'm doing rehab. I feel pretty good. And the coach hasn't played me yet. And then suddenly we're back on national TV against the same team and the same player that injured me. And the coach says to me on a Friday before the game, um, I think I'm going to put you in for some minutes tomorrow. Be ready. And I'm like on cloud nine. I go home. I'm excited. I finally get to play again. And one of the things that people had always asked me during the, I did one kind of media availability and they asked me, you know, do you feel a grudge? Are you angry towards the guy who did this? And I always said, no, I said like, it was forgiven from the moment it happened. One, because I needed all the energy I could possibly need to even make it back on the field. If I want to have a chance. And two, I don't believe in holding grudges and I don't think they believe me. So the game comes, I get on for the last five minutes. I don't remember anything that happened in the game, but it finishes and all these cameras are on me. Everyone's following me around cameras and I go and find the guy. That's the first thing I did. And in our sport, one thing you do after games is you trade jerseys with someone on the other team. You normally trade jerseys with your friends who you've kind of grown up playing against or someone that you admire. Like I remember when I played against David Beckham, I traded for his jersey, for example. It's a sign of friendship almost, or a sign of respect. And so I find the guy who did this. I hug him. And I tell him, let's trade jerseys. And we do. And cameras are flashing. Everyone's going crazy. I go home and I've never had so many messages in my inbox, on my phone, on social media. And it was from people that weren't even soccer fans. Over the next couple of weeks, it was like pastors and teachers and parents who were like, I've come across your story. And that act, one, is like one of the greatest moments I've seen in sports. And two, 
I'm going to use it to teach my kids about forgiveness, teach like that. And that meant more to me than anything else that anyone said to me during my rehab. So um, I made it back on the field, played about three more years, had some fantastic moments again. The one thing I think I was missing was I was never able to sustain the level I had before for a long period of time. I could be good for two or three games and then I would drop a bit more than usual and I'll be good for another two or three games. Whereas before I was at a point where in a 34-game season, 25 of them were excellent, five were great, and then four were okay. Now it was like five great ones and the rest. And I couldn't really stay healthy like I could before. So ultimately, I said, I'm going to choose my long-term health over kind of forcing this. And so I walked away from the game um, a couple of years ago, um, well, 20, end of 2014 season now. So it's a while ago now. And wasn't sure what was next. But by that point, I think I learned to trust um, in my path and my purpose quite a bit and just to see what happens and it's been four years I haven't regretted it I'm in a fantastic space and I've been able to travel um, this country speaking telling my story and it's kind of fulfilling the second part of the platform that I wanted to have if this podcast is the intersection of faith and sports how do you define that for me one of the things that I think I struggled with when I was really young when I first kind of came to an understanding of what my faith was, was um, can I still be an athlete, complete, talk trash, be tough, but then be this nice, loving guy as well? And then I realized that it's the faith aspect of it is not something separate. It's not compartmentalized. It's who I am. And whether I'm you know, driving my car, whether I'm watching TV, whether I'm out with friends for a meal, whether I'm playing my sport, I'm just being who I am. So I stopped separating them and just be who I was as a person. Um, understanding one, I think, will help me, which is that there's no expectation to be perfect or whatever. But in this society we live in, very few things have the lens on them that sports have. And if you can't take advantage of that for positivity, then Steve, you failed. And what that looks like is different for everybody. For me, it was one, just the way I lived, um, the example I carried. And then two, in my most public episode ever, without even knowing that I was doing something that was inspiring other people, I did. And I was just being myself. I don't hold grudges. Okay, that's just a normal thing. Whether there was cameras or not, I wouldn't have. Um, trading jerseys, I wanted to do that. Like those sort of things is how I define it. I define it just be who you are in whatever arena. And sports has such a big lens that you should really, really be who you are. Yeah, like you, I don't believe in coincidence. Yeah, I have a friend in this building that's walked by a few different times. And the number of conversations I've had with him about pain, mm. he has a really hard time taking that step of faith because yeah. he doesn't understand why God would allow hardship. Yeah. Why God allowed his grandmother who faithfully loved the Lord to battle cancer, why God would allow Steve Zakwani yeah. to come from the background you did, to have this amazing gift and take it from you. Why does God allow that suffering? Why does God allow that pain? Why didn't God allow Steve Zakwani, who was following him, who loved him, who had structure, who had this gift, why did God allow that injury, that pain, that suffering. Why? Yeah, it's tough, and I wrestled with that for a very long time. It's it's, it's so so tough because the question I asked myself was, Steve, do you think God could have prevented it? And I'd be like, Yeah, I think you really could have. So he stood there and watched, and I'm like, Yeah, and why would he do that? Absolutely. What I've learned now for me is, while I'm in this world or in this life, everything, good, bad, all of it is going to come my way. So it's not necessarily 
you know, I don't think saying I'm a person of faith or I believe in God then just turns into only good things come my way or happen to me. I think I still have experienced very real things that happen in all of our lives. I think what happens in that is how I grow through certain situations, um, what I gain from it and how I, how I use that in service of others. Um, I was speaking to a young soccer team. Um, this is shortly after my injury. And it turns out after I left them, the next game, one of the kids had the same exact injury I had. And his mom had reached out to me. And we waited a year until he was healthy enough for his first practice. And I came to his practice and surprised him. And to see the look on his face and just how he was like, this is crazy like that. Again, for me, I would rather have learned these lessons without breaking my leg. Believe me. But if I did, how can I still use this for positive impact? And coming to understanding that God isn't going to spare me of pain, hardship, and things in this life, it comes to all. What I do get is an incredible sense of peace during those things, which I have now, um, just complete peace during those situations and being able to ask the question, okay, how can this be used for a greater good? I don't think any person on this planet can 100% reconcile that in their mind. I don't think you can. And I know what it is for me. It's for some of the things I've said, like, things will come my way and how can I use this or how can I I understand that that might even work for everybody but I think what maybe helps me is I don't try to always understand it I don't try to always understand I I do question things but I don't try to understand it and say this is exactly why now that I know I feel good I'm getting more and more comfortable as I get older in the uncertain I don't always pursue certainty if I don't know that's also okay and I just continue to believe anyway and what's next What's next for me is I'm excited. Um, there's a documentary that's just been made on my story from the Congo to London to Akron to Seattle. It's called Unbreakable. And it will be showing in at Cinema Egyptian in Seattle. It's a theater up the street from here, actually. Um, on my birthday, February 9th this year. And it will also be streaming after that date. Um, Unbreakable. And people can probably just google that and it'll come up there's pre-sales now and there's some limited signed dvds and things like that so that story's come to the big screen and i'm extremely excited about it above and beyond the intersection of faith and sports subscribe to receive every episode at above and beyond podcast.com